Welcome to the first interview of Hand Craftsmanship in the Digital Age. I'm your host, Strother Purdy, and shortly we will meet Tim Hochstetter. Apologies in advance for the auto quality of this Zoom interview, but he is about 715 miles away from me. I hope you also enjoy the amateur, which is to say authentic, quality of this interview. I promise much about handwork, many digressions off-topic into other related and interesting things, and a general good time. Enjoy! Today, I am speaking with uh, Tim Hochstetter, um, and I'll let him introduce himself because he will be far more interesting at introducing himself than I ever will, that I ever could be or would be. Um, and uh, then we'll ask him the three key questions, uh, which is not Monte Python. Uh, you're not at a bridge. Uh, and then we'll go and from- I'm not a witch. And you're not a witch. <laughs> And I am not Tim the Enchanter, nor are you Tim the Enchanter. So, Me. Tim, who are you? Uh, my name is Tim Hoxter. I am a, uh, a human being on the planet Earth, and I am an artist in recovery. I used to be an expert generalist material specialist um, who designed and built uh, large-scale art installations for cruise ships, casinos, and hotels, as well as private collectors working with blown glass, inflated stainless steel sculpture, an assortment of uh, resins and polymers and uh, all kinds of interesting structural combinations of materials. That's the that's pretty much what I do. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it was a it, pretty, pretty yeah. big, broad range of uh, skill sets, I guess. Yeah, uh, I'd say I'd say you can pretty much make anything anywhere, anyhow. Um, and that's an impressive skill range. I mean, yeah, list all of the materials you've worked <laughs> with, and all the tools you've owned, and all the places you've been would would uh, that that take up the whole podcast. So you're yeah, you're, you're a capable person. Yeah, and I and I'm yeah. I thanks thanks for noticing. And then I I it's like a uh, another aspect of the whole kind of identity uh, identification, you know, self branding or moniker is um not taking it all too seriously you know not because <laughs> I, I i i i don't do that anymore i just gave all that up over uh over a period of time kind of like evil knievel you know you jump that grand canyon once or twice and you're like all right how how many more times can i do this before <laughs> it gets boring or not so profitable people don't want to see it anymore <laughs> right right well, that's so, so you've reached a, a level of confidence. You don't have to prove uh, your worth by jumping over snake, uh, snake. Candy. No, that's right. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel. Yeah, that's that's one aspect of my my transition from a producer, fabricator, constructor. Um, is that I that maybe it, that's one part of it is reaching more confidence, and the other is just um, trying to consume less and um, really. In, almost in a more neutral psychological position being um, not, not attached to the mission so much, not attached to the, the benefits of that would sometimes be called the, the ego drive or the, you know, the intrinsic drive kind of being more passive mm -hmm. about it. And that happened over time, just in, in working with clients and sort of, you just become a little less invested in the, in the personal gain uh, mm. and you know 
Well, there, there's the first question. What is it that you love about your work? Um, are we talking? Yeah. Well, what what I used to love about the work was the art of combi combination, the actual physical engineering of uh, bringing and manifesting uh, ideas with materials to serve a purpose, uh, often aesthetic, but a functional aesthetic. And then all the aspects of that, you know, physical uh, manifestation of fabrication, the actual process, the, the, the performance of it, actually, when I was blowing glass, actually blowing the glass and sequencing and choreographing it. So it was very much what I loved about pretty much everything I've done is the process, you know, yeah. Yeah. of performance. And, oh. and, and yeah. almost everything... Yeah, almost every material that I was mastery, I had mastery over was one that went through some sort of state change. So it's transforming from a liquid state to a solid state or a solid state to a liquid state or, you know, the glass goes from yeah. solid to liquid. Um, the resins go from liquid to solid. Um, interestingly yeah. enough, metal working, you know, you're, you're welding and you're going from solid to liquid to solid. Um, that uh, somehow there's a theme through my whole career where that those are the materials that I responded to the most or sought to have mastery over the most. It's kind of a curious phenomenon. <laughs> right. You could look back with 2020 hindsight to see you've been fascinated with material transformation. Yeah. Oh, really? absolutely. Absolutely. And the, and the, 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 the quantum physical, uh, empirical understanding of that those transformations as well you know from in with resins oligomers and memes to uh metals where you're talking about the 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 fractal structural um crystalline for, you know cooling structures of molecular structures of metal to the vitrification of glass you know i would i would always work with them as an artist in and a craftsman with the baseline of physics you know yeah. The depth, the deep, the depth, the deepest level of physics, you know, which is which is kind of uncommon. It's less method and more uh, science, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, you know, not proportionally, not, not like it's not majority science, but it would the drive system, the intention, and the the curiosity, the intellectual curiosity about materials led me to the. I think really led me to the whole creative process of hmm. making stuff huh sure so it has something you mentioned before you talked about it being a dance but everything you've described there seems to me rather intellectual and thoughtful about the materials itself so is it is it a a, a mental dance a physical dance a both dance well both? with multi, with molten glass it's a both dance because there's uh you're you're sequencing movements and actions in a in a construct that is determined by uh heat time and articulation so the the forces and the physical manipulation of the material um and then then you have you you can work alone with molten glass but the scale of work that i was doing i re required one to three assistants yeah so it was actually literally choreography that had timing and beats and and there was measures you know there were there was there was measures of action, uh, temperature, 
and chronology that were had to be or, organized and it's yeah. happening in real time like a, like a piece of music it has a beginning a middle and an end and then it's over you know uh, same thing with the resins you have a time construct constraint you know if you mix it together you have working time then you have curing time and then you have post curing time and there's actually temperature involved in the post curing and that and most of the resins that are uh there's epoxies or complex uh ultra clear urethane casting resins they're all exothermic so they're generating their own heat which is like its own yeah. magic you know its own <laughs> mystical material but it's not ma it's not magic it's very scientific and there's there's again there's choreography involved you know sequencing your your steps yeah, and procedures yeah. and protocols and how you and how you handle them determines your health and the well-being of the people but also determines the quality and structural integrity and beauty of the object you know yeah yeah, yeah curious because in, in woodworking there is a little bit of that choreography of time with various glues or if you prep a surface for a finish if you let it sit too long it can oxidize and change the finish but really not that much. You, you really can walk away from the workbench for the most part at any time that you want to and come back at any other time. But if you're working with materials that are transforming from liquid to solid and back and forth, and you, you're, you're much more in tune with the, the dance of time and the requirements of time. Mm -hmm. That's a curious. So those are the aspects that you love. The, the next question may sound like the same one, but it isn't, which is when did you ever have moments of joy in your work and specifically what created those moments of joy? Um, no, that sounds like a very different question. I, I, yeah, for sure. I had moments of joy in the work. Um, and, in, you know, I think they would be, there's two kind, two, two, two moments that would happen in if a, if a piece is successful like it, if i didn't make a floor model i.e a piece of glass or something that fell on the ground and became a floor <laughs> model uh, if i didn't make a floor model and it was a it, we even if i achieved the something close to what i was hoping to do i would i would allow myself the pleasure and the you know if it was close it was good enough because i were i've worked with in the glass uh arena there's a lot of people who do this and they they um they have very rigid and structured uh ideas of what is the perfect goblet and i worked with a guy once who would throw things across the room if it wasn't perfect it was just uh -huh. a and i thought you know that's not a way to you're not going to learn anything by destroying the evidence every time <laughs> out of anger and frustration so i kind of developed a yeah. philosophy where and i so it's a philosophy that i i think i i mean Working with that guy, uh, who remained nameless, that sort of taught me it. But I think I I've been doing that for a while, where I just I accept what is in the process, uh, and and learn from it. Like you know, keep it around as a record. Um, so the joy, I, I was always striving for a satisfied kind of celebration after at the completion of each move, each work. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then there was the, uh, the other joy of um, in the process, which is very much the extrinsic or, or feeds in the intrinsic uh, value set that drives people to do things uh, was the appreciation and acknowledgement of others that mm. it was a successful piece or it has beauty or whatever. And that, that was another secondary joy. And that's, I think I, that's, 
pretty much, and then there would be the third one, which is the extrinsic value of uh, getting paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's outside the your control to some degree. When the check uh, clears, there's some there's a whoop whoop. Yep, yep. I mean, whether it's a speculation fine art piece or a, a large scale commission that you know took you nine months to work on, uh, that was a bit of joy to you know have the be yeah. able to say, "All right, I'm taking a week off and I'm going to rest my weary bones." You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, so those are the mo I would say those are some of the moments of joy if I could define them broadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So here's the third question in the in the easy the first three easy ones, which is what do you dislike about your work? Uh, well, it's funny because the, like um, I was just thinking about this today. Uh, with relationships to to people, it's like your past and your history. Uh, mm -hmm. If you had joyful and pleasant experiences with someone and then suddenly you fall out, when you fall out, it doesn't mean that your past experiences are over and they're null and they were all for naught or they were fake right. or they didn't really, those feelings are, don't become, you don't void those from the, uh, the log of your life experience, you know? And, um, same thing is true with the work that I do and did. Uh, what I dislike about it, that's the question, right? What What is yeah. it that I don't like about it? Um, during the process of creative enterprise, and I had a pretty potent drive system. I was very motivated and I was pretty ambitious with the, the, the kind of projects I did and the materials I worked with and the budgets mm -hmm. I was dealing with. Um, uh, what I didn't like about it was uh, some of the fundamentals of remuneration uh where like i would do big projects for a company and they would say well you did that last year for x dollars and you did it so efficiently and our budget went down this year so we want you to do more for less you know yeah. where you're being asked to drive yourself right Chip uh, come up with more genius creative ideas and solutions and aesthetics and jump through hoops and pet the egos of architects and engineers and designers uh for less money that was hard that, and, yeah. and it seems like it, i mean I, I don't know if it's the truth but it seems like the structure of uh capitalism and and the the rate of growth in the economy mandates that that's like sort of one of the one of the concepts is that there's whoever's winning has to win more and that's all that matters so yeah. If you're on the if you're on the production end or the manufacturing end, whether you're a farmer or an artist or a woodworker or a um, uh, a service someone in the service industry, it just seems like that's not that's really not a, it's not allowed to you're not allowed to be compensated as fairly as those who own and operate and manage the whole yes. system. So yeah. that really bothered me a lot. And I, I bumped into that quite frequently. I, you know, I, the accounting is the accounting. You spend so much and. Uh, and you're not allowed to to profit like everyone else is. Um, yeah, and you're the one who's create, creating the actual object, you know, and it's cut up into thirds, and you wind up with a quarter somehow. That was that was bothers <laughs> that was bothersome to me. <laughs> yep. So that I didn't like. And then another aspect of, I mean, one of the things that I tell myself the rationalization for not doing glass anymore, and not working with. Uh, 
you know, heavy metals, you know, metal objects and uh, create, you know, being uh, a producer is that, um, and an artist and a creative person is that I, I kind of just the amount of garbage and material that I consumed. Uh, mm. I, I had a hard, I had a hard time relating it to the value that I was receiving, you know, the impact the on, on the planet and the, both the energy oh. that the, the carbon footprint of blowing glass was like, uh, you know, you're talking a thousand gallons of propane a month on a, sh on a, on the low average, yeah. uh, plus the electric bill, plus all the toxic materials are all, all carbon, uh, intensive materials, all the, you know, yeah. to melt glass and color glasses, heavy metals and, um, hydrocarbon fuel, that kind of, that kind of, that started to wear on me a little bit, just in terms of consciousness and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And doing the equation of what, what's the what's the net gain here? You know, it's just to yeah. keep paying bills. You know, I don't know. So there's the there's so it's you know the waste. So it was the the constantly you know doing more for less, yeah. and then the amount of garbage I would produce and the amount of you know sure. debris I was participating in manufacturing as well. You know, yeah. when you see that, you see that with sawdust, it's not such a big deal because you can compost that shit. <laughs> you know, when you have when you have buckets and buckets of plastic coated with toxic resins, yeah, you have you know, mountains of mountains of uh, carbon dioxide that you're tons of carbon dioxide you're putting into the world. Yeah, yeah it starts to feel a little weird. Yeah, no, they're they're. I mean, the, in woodworking, for me, the um... Uh, the issue of waste were in terms of the finishes, which I desperately tried not to yeah. do uh, as much. But yeah, you're right. I mean, with the one exception of walnut, which is sort of a poisonous sawdust and uh, can kill uh, kill things that you put on that you put it on, um, it is a relatively yeah. benign. I knew a, a woodworker years ago, Tony Konovalov, who used no power tools whatsoever. Uh, it was all hand work. And it, it, it made me marvel because I came away realizing you really can make anything with essentially a sharpened spoon. It yeah. just takes you longer. Uh, yeah. Much harder uh, to do. Uh, more tendinitis. More tendinitis. <laughs> more tendinitis. But there is that, that very possible of just using your, you know, your, your body as the, as the, uh, the energy source uh, mm -hmm. entirely. And that can be somewhat appealing. Um, but of course, not within uh, the modern economy, or certainly not the digital age. Right, right, right. So uh, the um, the you've largely answered the next one, but so it's more of a question of what your thoughts are about how your work has contributed to your sense of well-being in life. Have you had to strive to find a sense of well-being that was at odds with your work? Uh, integrated or something of a of a mixed bag where you know your sense of well-being where does that come from well i immediately i think well um as an artist and a creative person the archetype is to be the artist is to be uh to identify with that persona in such a way that you are you are your work and I ran my business for many years as the work. I mean, my, yeah. I, my, 
my identity was my business. My business was my identity. Um, and that's typical. I mean, that's, you know, think about Prince or Madonna, not that I'm comparing myself to Prince and Madonna, but like they, <laughs> they, 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 they're, they are there. And yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Separation of church and state is sort of where I'm at now. It's like, I'm not, I am not, I don't work that way now. I'm not, um, so connected to that, uh, that way of thinking. Um, so what I've come to realize is that my sense of wellness, uh, when things were stressful in business and with the, the type of investment I made in the, in the work and the business and the, the craft, the skills, um, I, I don't think I do that anymore. I, I keep it separate and I'm not really, I don't really, I really don't have as much to say anymore creatively. Um, that's sort of one of the evolutions that I, that I've seen myself transform from someone who had something to prove, or I was trying to live up to an archetype or um, strive for recognition, i.e. more capital benefit, you know, trying to get, make more money, the ambition. I sort of don't have that as much anymore. And I think my sense of well-being comes from being unattached to those ideas mm. and sort of throwing that whole game into neutral. Yeah. Um, almost to the point where people are like, wow, you don't really do anything. And I'm like, I do enough to feed myself, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> to, to take motorcycle trips and do fun things. And, but it's not about, it's not about making things anymore. It's not about yeah, yeah. serving, serving other people, you know, that, you know, I don't know that. Yeah. So I think my well-being, uh, my sense of well-being has very little to do with what I do for a living and for uh, expressive, creative. Um, I'm not not really running yeah. that game anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So now and if, I could, well, if you've disconnected from your work, what what is the source of your well-being now? How would you? Uh, um, well, I think it's it's I try. I travel and I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, if you're, I, I think it's, uh, kind of meeting the world, uh, as it is sort of more of a, as a, as a, um, observer than as a, you know, a cog in a wheel and a machine trying to fit in. I just sort of, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really in sort of a neutral place lately which is, yeah, yeah. which feels good. Uh, and my sense of well-being comes from meeting new people and going to new places. I mean, I, I'm, that's sort of what I, I'm about lately. I have this new thing called ride awake moto where I, I just ride around on my motorcycle and, and document the experiences that I have with people. Yeah. And, uh, and, and really ex like the, in the creative process, all the joy that I, used to have making things i kind of have a similar feeling and sensation meeting people and making new relationships you know yeah which yeah. is kind of, kind of interesting and being alone with my own thoughts <laughs> and, not, and not being horrified you know <laughs> that, that brings that's my sense of well-being there i get from that yeah yeah I'd, uh, I'd say I find I find that being alone and not being horrified to be accessible on a bike when you're riding along. Um, yeah, it's a it's a, a lovely kind of a state, a mental state. But in and on that, um, 
on that very question of that mental state of, of where you are when you ride a bike, which golly, that could be a whole podcast in itself. Uh, in terms of the creative process, when, when you're making or when you were making uh, or when you're making now, um, how would you describe what goes on in your head uh, or in your entire being? so to speak, body and mind put together. What What is that process? How is it different from, say, watching TV or reading a book or doing something that isn't necessarily creative? Well, I think it's the difference between active consciousness and passive consciousness. Yeah. First, like your brain is um, you, 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 what you think your brain is. Your uh, Your consciousness, your sense of awareness is not in... Uh, is not taking experiences and on the receiving channel only. When you're do it, when you're in a creative process, you're in relationship. That's a, uh, um, it's an output of consciousness. So whether you're sketching a a, a design for a a table or a a door or whatever, you're you're putting you're generating energy outward, and um, the other is you know, watching TV or just doing a monotonous task over and over. You're just, you're just kind of in neutral consciousness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also there's a, the, the, another way I think about cre the creative process is as, um, am I, is it solution making or is it, you know, rote method, you know, are you, are you, and there's a, there's a creative energy that comes from, the 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 insights and uh, practice the discipline of solution making, whether you're dealing with wood or you're dealing with metal or even if you're doing mechanical work, that's creative. Um, where you're you're re-engineering or or untangling logic, you know, and intellectually that's sort of something that it's the one of the foundations of our species evolution is that we you know, that we're able to make sense of things. And, and in the creative process, there's a lot of making sense, whether it makes sense or not, but there's a lot of that process that's involved. So there's a, there's sort of a limbic thing that happens when you're in that state of mind. <laughs> By limbic, do you mean sort of not? I mean, like the, the chemicals that go off in your brain, the satisfaction of finding solutions, the satisfaction of aesthetic beauty. Yeah. Um, there's, there, there are positive positive kind of proactive energies that go out of your body they radiate you know into the yeah. into the materials sure um, sure so in those in those finding those solutions say you, you you've been given a commission to create x and you and it has all sorts of requirements for it in the pursuit of those solutions how you know what 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 part of you is active what what are you doing how do you get there so to speak well that's the that's the solution uh, brain is uh, it goes there's a whole sequence of of things that you do right from the moment you someone says would you make x and i'm like well i i made x before and it's going to cost you x y plus you know times you know three sure. uh, so there's that from the very moment of the inquiry the you're you're making decisions of whether I, yes, the first, the first binary, yes or no, do I want to do it or not do it? And then there's, and then there's, and then there's how, yeah. and, and there's multiple iterations of how, 
usually I just rattle them off out of my mouth in the first five minutes of the conversation. <laughs> People are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, I have to buy the fancy Zoom, damn it. <laughs> I just get cut off in the worst uh, silly ways. But yes, we were just talking about the creative process and looking into what, what goes on, because I think it's truly a mystery to people who don't make things. Um, and I was mentioning a, uh, a neighbor of ours that uh, even for the simplest thing, such as a, um, a light bulb that's out, they would, they would look to me because they didn't want to touch it. They were afraid they'd mess it up, they'd get hurt. They weren't quite sure. Uh, and their answer was twofold. One that, A, they'd never learned, that nobody had ever shown them how to do something, make something, fix something. Uh, and secondly, they had a tradition in their family that they'd always call somebody, that that was manual work, that they weren't manual work people. For a, a sink, you called a plumber. For a, for a light bulb out, you called an electrician. You had somebody else do it for you. Right. So there's very much a status aspect to it, as well as a, basically an ignorance. Um, and I'd say, uh, you know, for things like surgery, I would not uh, uh, do that to myself. I would find an expert for it. But for a, a light bulb, I would attempt to fix it myself and some minor things in the car uh, and the furniture that I make. So I guess we all negotiate how involved we are with the objects in our lives. Um, and the more involved I think we get with the objects in our lives, the, um, the, uh, uh, the more confident we are that there are parts of it that we can understand, that we can figure out. And that's, um, uh, but there's that there's that that sort of mystery if you don't really have your your feet so far into it. Yeah. Uh, with that mystery, you don't you can't really understand. Well, what do I do? How how do I fix a light bulb? What what's what's the process? Where do I even start? Um, and that uh, you know, as you're describing, you're, you're making. As you started to describe before we got cut off, you're you're making all of these binary decisions. Do I take the job? Do I not? Uh, I could solve it this way. I could solve it that way. Uh, yep. You will already have a collection of solutions in your in your head that you're you're sort of beginning to flip through. But a checklist of experiences as well. So back up to zero experiences. Where would you start in the creative process? Do you remember those early days? What drove you? Oh, and as a child, I would I had two encyclopedia collections, and I I would just I would read encyclopedias all the time. <laughs> and the more you know, like those ones that had the the acetate multicolored overlays of dissected animals or layers of uh, I don't know. There was a very graphic um, visual experience laying all the encyclopedias out on the floor and opening up to them up to your favorite plate yeah, pages and yeah. reading about them. Yeah. So it was, I mean, I think the basis, and I really believe this is the basis of almost all successful human enterprises, intellectual curiosity. Um, I don't know where it came from, if it was genetic or it was just the fact that those books were there and I indulged yeah. myself in the visual and intellectual pleasure of learning the new things. But I think that's the fund. That's the foundation is intellectual curiosity, and like, you know, some people 
in their adult years kind of get a little they get a they maybe they get curious a little bit about the world they live in like they're you know they're they want to understand politics so they 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 never really read the constitution and they never really understood the uh the way their government works but they want to get involved and they just go all in yep. they, they they start tapping into QAnon and that's the wrong kind of intellectual intellectual curiosity. I think it's yeah. I I I don't know how to I don't know how to turn people onto it after their uh, neuroplasticity and cognition has already been mapped. Um, it's kind of a tricky thing. Uh, you know, I I I have my own personal experience of growing and learning as a as a creative person in the world, uh, and I raised two kids and I tried to impart to them through osmosis and proximity uh this same intellectual curiosity but i really don't know how you do that with grown sure. adults who who are who are beyond neuroplasticity and who believe things uh, who who think that they because they believe things those things are true um like you hear all yeah. the time in the arts uh, adults would say oh i have no creativity or i'm not a good singer i could never draw yeah. i mean that's that's horrific that's a horrific thing to to me that makes my my skin crawl like really you should be careful because your subconscious mind is listening to that shit you know <laughs> you're, you're, you 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 will never be a good drawer you won't draw because you say that kind of stuff so yeah i think it's i think it's that um isn't it i mean yeah we've got a horrible political situation right now of everybody's minds is closed and all come to conclusions and opinions uh, yeah. are ruled supreme without really any connection to fact or reality. Um, yeah. But would you say, though, <laughs> that, I mean, I'm trying to look for some, perhaps, a, uh, perhaps some hope here that there can be, that we are still relatively open or can be open if we haven't been really taught otherwise. We can say... When the person says, oh, I could never draw, I, I'm just not capable of it, that there is a way to say, well, you know, actually, um, here, let me show you one thing. Uh, and uh, if you if you hold your, your hand this way, on a, in a piece of paper this way, you can draw a perfectly straight line. Right. And perfectly straight line next to it. Did you? And you just did that. Did you realize you could do that? Right. Wow. right. No, I didn't realize I could. Yeah, do that. incremental. Some that, kind of incremental, that incremental approach. Because of course, as a kid, we're 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 much more sponge-like, and and when we get older, we're much more yeah yeah. I know who I am, and yeah. I am not somebody who draws. And I learned and I learned the rules of the game, and this is how it goes, you know. And this is how it goes. And to <laughs> make that re-plastic. I mean, you're a master of of turning solids into liquids and liquids into solids. So, <laughs> isn't right, this right. a question of of turning a solid into a into a liquid? And and can't there be those incremental I'm sure like learning a language when you're 40 or 50, much harder than when you're a kid. Much harder. Yeah. But you still can do it. You still can sit, sit down and get the burlets. Um, yeah. Bending over and touching your toes after you're 53, it's difficult. You know, you got to stretch. <laughs> you got to work it at. You got to work at it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the, the, you know, you're talking about uh, the, I feel like you're talking about the, creative process of pedagogy of of learning or figuring out a way teaching people to learn like teaching people how yeah. to learn 
Uh, and that's a whole other genre that like, you know, that's sure. a, that's like a whole other creative process. Um, and I think that the best teachers are those who are, you know, have been great students. God. And like that, that's, um, or the most successful teachers are the ones who have been great students who, you know, have that again, have that intellectual curiosity. And that to me, that's what it comes down yeah. to is like just the basic the early steps. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, I don't know, finding the, uh, finding that, well, I'm, for me at, at this point, well, where's the demand for that? Is there a demand? And then is there a venue? uh for that sure uh, and if there isn't how do you create how do you create it maybe that's what you're doing right here with the podcast well trying to uh, absolutely uh, the the famous example we all get held up to is nobody knew that they uh they really wanted a phone that also took pictures and videos right and somebody created it and then nobody can live without it right right um, i'd like to think that uh, in terms of that creative process of just making things and being hands-on, uh, nobody, if you grow up with it, you realize, my God, this is wonderful. This is really part of my identity. I love it. Uh, yes, I hate being demeaned as a producer for it, but there's still great joy in the process of making it. Uh, and um, uh, why can't, uh, well, I lost my train of thought there, but why can't other people get it why can't they also achieve it um, all right and what and or why can't i why can't i share that yes uh, you know the, why can't i or what how can i share that that's the other one uh, you know so i i did workshops and classes and did i did teach at a private school for a short period of time and i explored this whole idea of of uh instruction and uh uh incitement or, or an invitation to uh, um, inspiration. You know, that yeah. was sort of the way I approached it when I was teaching kids. Like, let me get you excited, inspire you, and then get you on board of this crazy creative train, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a very, I feel like it's, a, for me, it's a very um, limited, there's a very limited windows of opportunity or um, mm. experience um opportunities to do that and that's not really what i'm about lately but it's it it seems like there's a you know there's um a lot of what is that master class there's other there's other venues for people to do this but yeah. they're usually they're usually private digital um structures and formats and when you're talking about physical wood like woodworking and and glass blowing and um even ceramics well uh, ceramics like these are all very physical location based material based uh creative processes uh it would be cool if there was like at a li at libraries if you could go to i mean i guess there are some places where you can rent machines or you can go take classes and workshops yeah. that's really the that's i think that's really like the the best place to reach adults is in those kind of venues where yeah. You know, where you're like, hey, we're going to go do take a night ceramics class and we're going to learn how to throw pots this week. And next week we're going to do slab building or whatever. Those yeah. are the kind of those are the kind of the new the new emerging market or not emerging markets. But those are the new emerging uh, locales and opportunities for people to 
get with skills to build skills and to experience creative process. Yeah. In fact, I, I think I might be taking a, a ceramics workshop at the at the local uh, art association this winter yeah. just for fun. Just oh, th throw some pots just for fun. <laughs> Absolutely. You don't have to buy all the equipment. Yeah, right. those, those schools have, have always been around. But I'm curious what your, your um, and the, the, I think they're a key entry point to be able to, to not buy a wood shop. Yeah, um, you know, to be able to start to start out, some some of the billionaires can do that uh, just as a you know a weekend thing. But the vast majority of little folk can't possibly. Uh, in my my experience with teaching, I, I see a lot of the hurdles toward really engaging. But I'm curious what your experience was with with the kids. If you're inviting them to be creative. Uh, in, in my teaching, it was never creative. The, the, the classes were always toward you know, learning a power tool, uh, making a dovetail, uh, relatively far more practical and useful information is what would sell. When I would try to offer a design course, it would be crickets. Uh, yeah. nobody, nobody wanted to learn a creative process. And it sounds like you tried to teach a creative process. I definitely did. And I broke the, I broke the class down in like, so for example, in woodworking class where I did a, I did several different uh, materials. I had a woodworking class. I had a, a glass making class where we did uh, basically beadwork, torch work, uh, you know, making small pieces of glass with torches. Um, yeah. And then I did a, a metalworking class where we, where we made like a jewelry box and a knife <laughs> yeah. or a knife. You know, like it, there were two different classes, but one of them was knife making. And every one of the classes, I broke it down into uh, um, the, the first part was a design session where I talked about the the structure of design from intention to uh, engineering to aesthetics. And then I would break from that from that aspect. I would go. So there was a we all had a baseline of conversation in terms of like you're going to make a box. What does it have to do? It has to have hinges. And we, so you define the parameters and limitations of the material within the construct of your vision, imagination, and inspiration, which, you know, you know, I would, yeah. would, I would impart. And then um, with examples and, and then there was the technical part where it was like, so there's the design phase. And then there's the technical part of the class where we talk about the dangers, the opportunities, and the process uh, and I would show videos of you know people hurting themselves with the tools that they're going to be using so they had a direct physical physiological <laughs> empathetic interface with, with the danger right so that's what you do with children like if you fall this is what it's going to look like and you hold up a picture you know um, <laughs> and these are specific injuries that you could that you could incur you know loose clothes long hair blah 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 um, and then there was the process uh, the process part and the process part, you know, it sounds like, you know, you, you have a design thing, you'd have a, a, the, 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 the methods and techniques and process. And then there was the creative making part of it. And I always, I always like threw and sprinkled that process with freedom. Like you can change the design part, you know, you're not going to change the way the machine works, but you can change the design part and you have creative freedom in this process. And, it always create a great satisfaction in the students, even if they're 
and we would look at their original design and their drawing, and then we would look at their product. If it was even if it was something totally different, there was great satisfaction because they went through the entire creative process, yeah, cognitively engaged and self-driven. So it wasn't as much assignments uh, like you're going to make a dovetail or you're going to make, it was just the object. It had to hold jewelry in it. You know, it had it, maybe it had a shelf, you know, someplace for rings. Um, uh, but it, yeah. So that was kind of a cool thing that I, I went through that. So it, different, it, different approach than anything I had ever been, any of the classes I had ever taken, you know, that was not like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. do you feel the kids essentially got it? Oh yeah. yeah. I was one of the, I think I was one of the faves. <laughs> I, I, I was well-respected. I had a lot of fun. I really, they, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone disliked the class. You know, I mean, if you, you're, I don't know if you're high school age and you're learning how to make hand forged knives or, you know, reclaimed knives from files or, you know, scrap yeah. metal and make hand, you're making the knife, you're honing it, shaping it making the handle contouring it and then you have a functional thing that you have the rest of, I mean, it was the rest of your life that was a pretty fun yeah that was yeah, a pretty yeah. fun course and your and your learning design logic and actual physical skills how to use a drill press and a woodworking tools for the handles and yeah. grinders and cutters plasma cutters and torches and welders and all this stuff that that's a pretty full that was a pretty full class that was a pretty full package yeah, yeah. No, there's an enormous amount there to uh, get it all together. The, in uh, one semester. In one semester, exactly. In the shorter yeah. term, the the craft classes that I've I've taught in the evenings, you know, there'll be there'll be ten sessions of yeah hours each, uh, and to get it, it's always as they all project classes would be popular. But you had to keep them moving, so there really couldn't be that much choice. You had to yeah. get the object. They had to leave with the object done. They get great satisfaction as a student. Yeah, yeah. To back up and say, "All right, you've got choices here." Um, choices, choices would 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 freeze a lot of them. They get locked sure. into yep, a, yep. into the weight of the choice. Oh, but if I, with this sort of fear of choosing wrongly I and being you know, thrown into the into the valley of, of despair if they choose wrongly. Uh, and that that was very hard to overcome in with those strict time limits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also finding, you know, teaching ways to help people overcome that kind of freeze and fear about the unknown and to allow it to happen. I think with a younger kid, there there's there's so much that greater plasticity, but also a less of a sense of the of the importance that if they if they don't make a knife by the end of the semester it doesn't matter he's going to pass me anyway he's a nice guy yeah i just um, got to show up <laughs> i just got to show up just got to show up and not be late and and uh, that can create a, a freedom and not and not caring there can be freedom yeah and what the outcome comes from hierarchy and value hello <laughs> what like in what context color, um your thoughts about you've already touched on a bit you, you've had something to say about the capitalist system that the shall we say the knowledge workers that have are higher up on the um the scale of social value 
the hand workers uh, down lower on the uh, scale of value. I did work for an artist once, um, interesting guy, I won't name him, uh, made million dollar sculptures, but he actually didn't make any of the sculptures. He designed them on the computer and then I would make them for him. And I yeah. got into a discussion about, well, as an artist, aren't you going to get some kind of feedback? No, no, no. It's all all in my head. And he was he was, of course, he paid as little as possible for these these sculptures to be made. But it, it got me into a curious here I am making these these works of art. I'm the maker. Yeah, I don't have any choice over I have I had tons of choice over how it was made and the materials it was made from and a few tweaks yeah. so that it actually held together and didn't fall apart. Right. So I was active in its design from a certain aspect of it, but not really. Um, but it 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 left me with this marvelous sort of play in my head of the of the hierarchy of of status. And I, thoughts, any thoughts, any direction that you want to go on that. Well, different crafts have different uh, uh, origins in their hierarchy, or 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 have hierarchy as part of their they're inherent to this, the ability to even do the project, project uh, the art form, L like specifically glass making is a great example of this because the amount of energy, literal physical energy required to keep glass, to make glass, to melt sand into glass is enormous. And the structures and infrastructures required to, to maintain that at a, at a regular, at a regular um, pace is, was colossal from yeah. the very beginning talking wood fired charcoal fired furnaces yeah originally yeah. Uh, from the romans on for many hundreds of years and the only people who were able to create this magical morphic goo into chalices vessels and urns uh were the super rich uh so yeah. there, there was built into the the hierarchy of craft you know the order of craft from the design house all the way down to the people who sweep the floor, there was this. There had to be. There was a, a pay scale and a hierarchy of control and power that was fundamentally economic and and highly aesthetic. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, the most talented people were getting paid the most, uh, but still, they were they were definitely not paid like they didn't make the profit that the noble made or the merchant made selling the wares, right? Uh, that that's the nature of that's the nature of capitalism you always get there has to be a hierarchy in order someone needs to be sub choose to be submissive so that someone else can be in charge or yeah yeah the, the monetary master the master of the money um, and that tradition uh has never i mean it has never ended in the glass world i mean dale chihuly is a great example of someone who has like very little mastery uh, of the material he has very little skill like if we look at what he does by his own hand from the beginning of his career it's kind of like meh you know not so good i'll just say it out loud it's not so good and then he lost his eye and everyone thought oh his work's not so good because he lost his eyes like meh it was never so good but he had the ability to to control and harness the that that archetypal hierarchy yeah. and people accepted that people accepted that those conditions and worked for him and you know were creative people and he took his their creative ideas and made them his own because he was hiring them yeah. uh, and then he went to italy and hired like uh, pino tagli pietra and lino um 
you know, he hired all these Pino and Linos and uh, basically <laughs> capitalized on their mastery and skill. So that's one, that's one great example of how it, it hasn't changed. So, but what, what's interesting about that story is that uh, it is the artist's charge to demark and notate the values of the culture of the day, right? When they were. Yeah. And so basically, uh, you know, Chihuly is like a Renaissance man for the corporate logic of the day and the, the new modern capitalism, whereby the shareholders interest and the owner's interests are way more valuable uh, and have, and are, and are, they're entitled to the majority, the, the vast majority of the profits of the value of the productive act than the people who actually do the productive act, you know? Um, that's never, I mean, that's not going to change unless there's a, 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 a resurgence of craft uh, values, but with robotics and the, the, the direction we're headed now with AI and the, the seizure of, uh, of labor and even the, you know, this free and liberal uh, democratic republic we live in uh, the seizure of that value uh right now i mean it seems like any everybody i know who produces or creates something physically does it at a loss or at, at with very narrow profit margins just as a general rule especially now with inflation inflation the way it is and yeah. it's and apparently it's not negotiable <laughs> you know there's very little you have very little leverage oh you won't do it you want more money for the job well we'll find someone who will because they're all out there everyone's hungry you know so I, I don't, I really don't, I mean, to be optimistic here, I really don't see a future in craft and handwork. I think that there's more of a future in managing robots and, and basically investing in the right um, stock owner, ownership group of indentured slaves and servants, because that's really the way it's headed. I don't see how, I don't see how craftspeople find a way to have a renaissance where their handwork and their creativity is valued in a, in a, in a world that's completely digitized and monetized, yeah. by, monetized by title and ownership. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm, and like I said, I'm being optimistic here. I'm sure. trying to offer, I'm trying to offer hope and insights <laughs> no, I, to, to avoid to, 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 so people don't get burned. Yeah. No, the, the economic <laughs> viability of, of crafts is, is, um, is, you know, uh, bad it's it and, and, and and give you an example i mean it's become a competition you know like there's this blown away it's a glass blowing competition and the great british throwdown the bake-off and the you know everything <laughs> any 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 anything creative anybody does if there's a fucking television show that's a competition <laughs> so it's a fuck so i had no idea glass blowing was a sport i had no idea that you could take <laughs> As in, at an Olympic level, you know what I mean. This is an Olympic level brulee, you know. <laughs> so this nuts. is the, the Roman uh, Forum, yeah. of, of crafts, where uh, yeah, gladiatorial arts, gladiatorial and arts and crafts. <laughs> the loser is, is thrown to the lions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pumpkin pumpkin carving competitions. You know, it's like I don't know. Uh, all right. Well, I've got two last questions for you. The first um, answer is platypus. Excellent. Um, the last question. <laughs> that might just fit. Uh, and I'll give them both to, to you at the same time. 
Is there any work that you consider essentially not for you, beneath you, you're not going to touch it, and for what reason? And is there any work that you consider above you that let's say you wanted to do it, but you knew you really couldn't? Wow. Well, I mean, yeah. these days, these days, I spend a lot of time thinking, what's the least amount of work I can do in general? <laughs> well, this is total theory. Well, yeah, well, this is I'm just giving you I'm just giving you my practical. The, 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 this is the baseline here. This is the baseline. What what's the least amount of work I can do at any given time? And uh, and how long do I have to do it for? Um, yeah. So but beneath me, um, I find myself I'm a family member asked me to um, to paint their interior of their house. Uh, in California for two weeks for a good chunk of change, and I I I'm torn because I I'm literally torn because my shoulders are all fucked up and my hands cramp up because I've worked so hard for so long mm, that, yeah. that I've got like you know I've just kind of got like oh I know this is two weeks I'm gonna have to recover for three months after that you know oh, what I mean yeah. or, or maybe I injure myself and I have to go get surgery or who the fuck knows so there's that part of it I mean I'm not that old but I worked a little I think I worked a little vig too vigorously in my younger years and uh, so there's that part that I it's not beneath me, but I feel like there are, I have physical limitations. I'm not, you know, right. Right. That that's a thing. And, um, you know, the, to exert, I mean, it used to be that I could exert myself for eight hours a day at 120 degrees in the glass studio, nonstop with a quick banana and a drink of water, uh, you know, do that for two weeks straight to get a job done. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I won't do that anymore. I won't do that. So that's, you know, that kind of thing that, that kind of heroic, uh, forceful physical work, I don't think is good for anybody. I think it's a, it's yeah. sort of another, another punishment for being, is it's another punishment for being poor and ambitious as an artist or a creative person, um, that you, you, you'll live, you get to live with chronic injuries. Um, so that there's that anything like that is, uh, I would say it's beneath me, but not because of, uh, my ego or my, um, uh, sense of social hierarchy and then like other things like uh um i i i don't know that i have the olfactory i have a very sophisticated and highly developed olfactory sense so like doing work like um pumping septic systems which it has to be done or yep. plumbing, sewage maintenance, and things like that has to be done. I couldn't do it because okay. I would just I would be vomiting all the time. You know, it'd be I'm a sen I'm sensitive that way. <laughs> I don't know if I'm really giving. I don't know if I'm giving the answer. I mean, I could say something like. Sure. Uh, no, no, these are perfectly good answers. But how I mean, about I, some... I would never, I would never want to be a painter, a fine art painter, because. Oh, the oil paint is just not i mean why how can you express any sense of uh, perception of reality when you can just take a digital photograph you know i mean right, i, I right. could could give you one of those lines but I, that's not really my my game and then above me uh well wait a I second feel... just one one quick one quick uh, yeah, follow-up uh yeah uh a telemarketer where you read from a script would you take that kind of a job I'd go out of my fucking mind. It would be, well, I would right. take that job for like right. two days 
and it would be a it would be a, a comedy of errors, like deliberate comedy. <laughs> I would self sabotage for my own entertainment. It would just be, I would, right. and I would definitely use different voices, <laughs> and I would get in trouble. People would say that's racist. You can't talk like that because you're not you're not of that ethnic um, uh, origin. You know, origin. yeah, not, yeah. Um, you know, mostly do like Scottish and Irish. People would be really offended. Okay. Trying to, try to sell things on the phone. I don't know, Struther. You why got me. You, you got me cornered. I got you cornered. No, I, I, oh. I've got an idea why. It's because you, you have absolutely zero creative input. You'd be reading from a script. It would drive you crazy. Yeah, I would just. I would go doing nuts. what somebody else is telling you to do. Yeah, and I, I would take the job just for my own entertainment. Like I said, right, just, exactly. As sort of like a, a an anarchist experiment. What would I? I would do that for that reason. Okay, so yeah. the other hard, the other hard one. Is there a job or work that you consider? No, even if I wanted to, I couldn't do it. And if so, why? Well, I think um, uh, I think I'd have to wait and see what the offers were, what the job was, because I can't imagine. I mean, I don't imagine. I mean, I, like, what would that? What would that be that I couldn't do? I could consult on anything pretty much. You could ask me my opinion. I would, I would, I would, if they said, I want, we want to hire you to build this bridge. I was like, well, I'll, I'll take a fee for consulting. <laughs> what, what are your ideas? What did you have in mind? You know, what color do you want? You know, I, I don't know. I might, I might so, do that. I think there more, is some limitation even with more theoretically, uh, like even more theoretically, such as to become a, 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 a doctor of pure math um, or, a, a, a surgeon um you know some some discipline that oh this is a multiple choice question <laughs> <laughs> no i definitely not a surgeon too much i, I don't like the smell of blood oh there's unless that yeah unless it's lot unless it's game blood you know like but if you if you like the smell of blood and wanted to cut up people you would have a sense that yeah i could learn to do that yeah, that sounds plausible. That sounds like a plausible theory. <laughs> um, I think I was going to say, I think that some digital, um, uh, you know, like digital design things. Well, I, yeah, I, I know I've worked, I have workarounds for just about everything. I, I don't know. I mean, it really <laughs> depends. It really depends on the, uh, it depends on what the job is. I don't know. There's not nothing I can think of that I, you know, I think I could, I think I would be, I, I, you'd get me into the room for almost anything. Interesting. I would, sit, I would sit for the interview and then I would let you know. And that, I think that goes right back to that whole idea that I was talking about before, which is I'm the intellectual curiosity because I'm not, I'm not afraid of new ideas or challenging, yeah. de deconstructing, reorienting what I believe is what I believe are limitations or, you know, either in material or in, you know, skill and craft. I don't think that yeah. I'm, I don't really feel, I'm not, I don't know. It's just like, I don't feel like I'm, that's a, I think I would answer the question, but like, uh, you know, the, the answer would be, well, be more specific. <laughs> what job are you talking <laughs> about? Cause I don't, I don't know. I can't think of one that I wouldn't want to do or wouldn't want to learn more about. Yeah. 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 Underwater welding, it you know, how much does it pay? I mean, if it pays a lot of money, I might take the risks, you know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
I, yeah, I didn't I have to lose the zoom in about a minute, but I still want to keep talking. You want to move the phone? And I'll just we'll the end the interview. I'll take out all that stuff by later, but I'll say thank you, Tim Hoxetter, for your insights into your work and sharing them with, I don't know, just me. Maybe somebody else will listen to this. <laughs> Whoever <laughs> else is listening. Whoever else is listening. <laughs> thank you very much, Charlotte. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I, hope it, I hope my words were useful. Uh, they absolutely were to me. And thus abruptly ended our conversation due to technical difficulties. I hope Tim and my conversation gave you an insight into something of what a handmaker's life is like, uh, what they find in it, uh, what they learn from it, how that work radiates into the rest of their life. Their life. So I hope you come back next episode to hear from another. Thanks very much for joining. Have a good one.